welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm David. I'm a sexaholic. My um, sobriety date is August 2nd, 1988, by the grace of my higher power, and for that I can never be sufficiently grateful. My thought for this uh, time is I'll talk for sort of 20-ish minutes, and then um, what I'd really love is if people who are in their first couple of years of sobriety um, could come up front somewhere, maybe we'll just move the chairs a little bit, and um, we can kind of have a conversation about how it's going and what would be helpful to you and things like that. So if you're in that time period, if you'd sort of... um, when when I switch over it a bit, move up closer to the front uh, or the front, that'd be great. Um, I don't know how long it took me to say uh, that I'm a sexaholic comfortably. Um, I tried sex addict for a while. I tried recovering sexaholic once in a while. Um... And what I've found for me is that I do best with sexaholic. Um, I think I identify not only with Sexaholics Anonymous, I also identify with um, lust as my primary addiction. And and underneath the lust is self-centeredness, which is pretty much right in there with it. And uh, most importantly, probably, I really identify with the aholic part um, because I have been most comfortable when I hear people talking about being sex drunks. And that's very much, as I sat in that circle on that night on August 2nd, 1988, that's what I began to realize, that I got drunk on, at first it was sex, and then it later became lust, the same way that an alcoholic gets drunk on alcohol. And I knew a little about that, as I said, so I um, I could make sense of that. The other question, though, was, was I a chronic or a binger? And that was really never a question. I It was never a serious question, because I knew the answer immediately. Um, and I've known alcoholics who binge, and I've known alcoholics who drink all the time and are never sober. And I was clearly in the latter group. I had stayed drunk on lust and sexual fantasy and sexual acting out continuously at least since age 10 um, and probably since a little before that. And I was among the kind of drinker who just, uh, I was probably a wine drinker and uh, I just never let the glass run dry. But it really didn't care if it was beer or wine or mixed drinks or, you know, or just something out of the chem lab. Um, as long as it had the effect, I didn't really have a lot of pickiness about the kind of alcohol. 
except like most alcoholics who have a very definite drinking pattern, things they like, the way they do it, I was the same way with lust. And I had a very clear pattern. It's just that under duress, I'd use anything. Um, and so I was uh, identified very strongly as a sexaholic who never let the uh, fantasies run dry and who was always, uh, as soon as he had had one drink, planning where is he going to get the next one. And this probably is a combination of a couple of things. One is just who I was when I walked in and sat down in that circle. The other thing is the two people who, uh, well, three people got Sexaholics Anonymous going in Nashville. Um, after six months, one of them, uh, whose name was Roy, actually, he was called Little Roy back then, uh, one of them committed a murder of a woman he was having a relationship with and is serving a life sentence in prison for that. Uh, the other two, on the other hand, stayed sober, probably with his help, indirectly. Um, and they both uh, were very, very active in AA. Uh, the one of them... Um, had been sober six months from alcohol and came to his sixth step and realized that he was not willing to give up lust or sexual acting out. Um, and in the process of recognizing his character defect, found S.A. The other uh, was a woman who uh, had been active in AA and just found herself engaged in multiple repeat affairs and she was single and she realized that she was destroying her life and her career and all those things and she had to do something about it. And it happened that both of them stumbled into AA. I think Jean came a little bit before Harvey but not much about the same time and along with little Roy. And uh, little Roy went off and did his thing. The only piece of literature that existed then, other than the AA Big Book in 12 and 12, was an early draft of the, what's now our pamphlet. And um, that's what they had to work with. Um, as they will each freely tell you, they were totally insane. And furious all the time. Obviously out of fear. They don't like looking back. Um, the good news is, when I came in about four years later, they'd gotten through a lot of that. <laughs> and and uh, meetings were actually reasonably well organized. We, we had six meetings a week. Um, I had been around the periphery of AA enough to know that uh, 90 and 90 really worked, and I was willing to do that. I happened, since I got sober in early August, that I could just totally bag my occupational requirements for a period of time. And I did. And um, I did nothing but focus on getting sober. Uh, not everybody has that opportunity. I'm just grateful that I did. And um, I went to one meeting a day for, um, I tried for 90. I think I made 77 out of 90. Um, we didn't have a meeting on Sundays. So on that night, I would go to an SAA meeting that was in town. Um, one of my uh, early, most memorable experiences in getting sober uh, took place. Uh, just before I went to that Sunday night meeting, I had been standing in the bathroom and I leaned against the sink and stimulated myself. And it just terrified me. I'd been sober probably a week or two at that point. 
And I went to the uh, meeting, and uh, there was an old time old time AA guy there who was in SAA, and he uh, was listening to me share about how distraught I was that I'd leaned against the sink. And he looked across the room at me and said, <laughs> and I did. Um, you know, when we just identify the reality about this disease for each other, we just do each other wonderful favors. It doesn't really matter where we are. We just do it for each other. Anyway, uh, we eventually started a meeting on Sunday night. And um, so then I went to just SA meetings. I went to one meeting a day unless I just absolutely couldn't do it for some reason. I had a trip out of town for five days. I think that was a big chunk of time I missed. And uh, because of the AA um, sort of experience in the group and in the people who founded um, SA in Nashville, uh, I have always included AA meetings in my mix. Now, I don't go very often to AA. Um, what I know is it's important that I be able to go to AA meetings. Uh, and the same with uh, NA or any of the other uh, fellowships. Um, but especially AA. And um, so in Portland, I go to a Sunday morning meeting uh, when I go. just I could go to any meeting, but one of our guys in Portland used to go to it, and I'm comfortable being there. And I used to do that in, in Nashville um, when I was going to miss a meeting or if I just need an extra meeting. Uh, we didn't have two meetings, two meetings a day for some time. Uh, I think Nashville now has about 27 meetings a week or so, so... The, the number of meetings has gone up quite a bit. Um, and if I wanted two meetings, I would usually fit in one AA or occasionally NA and then uh, an SA meeting. At, most of them were at night. Um, I, I'm, this, I wanted to talk mostly about the first two years, and, and some of it will come out more in questions, but one of the uh, things that stunned me the most, well, as I said, I identified right away. I knew there was a problem. Uh, the white book at that time was an 8.5 by 11 format, and it was um, sort of like typewriter printing. And um, I was starting to read that, and that was uh, very helpful. And I also uh, had an AA big book that I had had for some time and started reading that and uh, eventually got a copy of 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. The recovery continues. It didn't exist at that point. And um, I began reading and, and sort of trying to get some handle on this um, disease that I had. And I was going to a lot of meetings, as I said, and, and I would, it was interesting to me how I would hear different things in each meeting. Um, I definitely had that experience that people report all the time that I never went to a meeting where I talked, but I didn't leave feeling better than when I'd gone in. I did have some meetings that I went to where I didn't talk, and that didn't work. I uh, didn't have to say much. A lot of times all I had to say was, I'm David, I'm a sexaholic. Um, usually I had more to say than that. And so I began to, I, I, I discovered that. I discovered that going to that many meetings really helped a lot because um, I came to sort of understand, in me anyway, especially I suppose since I was not a binge user, I was a chronic user, um, that I had to replace the addiction, the disease, 
with something that was not only as powerful, which S.A. clearly was, but also as time-involving. And one way I was able to do that uh, was to be going to a meeting every day and then to be talking to people before and after the meeting and making phone calls, although I'll say more about phone calls in a second. Um, so this the frequency had a lot to do with it. Um, and, and and really worked for me. And in fact, I kept up daily meetings probably for most of the first year. Uh, I would occasionally, after the first three months, uh, have not maybe five a week, but then I'd be back at seven. And it sort of hovered between five and seven and occasionally a few more. Uh, my wife and I had an every other week dinner group that we've been a part of for many years. And uh, our meetings were at eight o'clock. So at a quarter of eight, I would leave the dinner group and at 9.15, 9.30, I'd come back to the dinner group. And for the first six months or so, I didn't say anything about where I was going. I just went. Um, they knew enough. We didn't share sort of personal stuff in this particular dinner group, which was strange, but we didn't. But they knew that I had to do it. And uh, so on Thursday nights, I would go to our Thursday night meeting. As it happened, because of where we lived and where the meeting was, the logistics weren't too bad, but the truth is I would have gone no matter what. Um, I had to have meetings were my first priority. I canceled my evening obligations professionally as much as possible, and the majority I was able to reschedule. Uh, because of my professional obligations, I get involved in a lot of counseling, and basically for six months I did no counseling. I had a lot of really pissed off people that, because we had had ongoing relationships, some lasting several years, and I just stopped them. Um, I couldn't do it. I didn't have any energy. I didn't have the competency to do anything other than just take care of me for that period of time. Eventually, I did resume that, um, changed some things, um, was in a situation where I was able to never close my door uh, doing counseling. And for uh, about five years, four years, I guess, that's what I did. I just, the door just never shut. <laughs> you know, That solved a lot of problems right there. And uh, the privacy was okay because of the layout of the building. But there were things like that that I just sort of found my way back to some uh, pattern. However, uh, the thing that hit me the hardest initially were two things. One was I was driving around town one day. I'd probably been sober about two weeks, maybe a week, week, two weeks. It was early on anyway. And I came up behind a car, and there was a woman driving the car in front of me, and she had uh, black hair, sort of that longish, not especially long, and, you know, you can only see a certain amount over the seat anyway, and, and that was really all I saw of her. And I was totally triggered in terms of a sexual response. I mean, the craving kicked in, and I thought, what in the world is going on? Uh, because hair's never been a particular trigger for me. I have a guy, who's a sponsor, who's got great difficulty with hair. It's never been my big deal. And in any case, I wasn't—I didn't see her face or any other body parts or anything. And, I, and yet, I was just consumed, and and it just really frightened me. And I realized that that I was always sexualizing everything. Uh, whether it was physical objects or people or situations. I don't think there's a country lane in Middle Tennessee or rural Illinois that I didn't evaluate as a possible place for a sexual liaison. Never did it. I don't think there's a motel I went by on the freeway.
that I didn't imagine what it would be like to check in there with some woman. Never did it. I was doing that constantly, and when I stopped acting out, I suddenly had to confront how much I was doing it. I, I did not have a clue, and that's what really came to me out of that one experience. I had no clue as how much I was sexualizing anything and everything. It just really stunned me. The other thing was, um, my wife and I had separated inside the house. She was staying downstairs, which was a finished area, and I was staying upstairs in our bedroom. And uh, one night, about 2 a.m., I was, well, first of all, when I got sober, a typical day, now remember, I had canceled almost all of my work obligations. I had to do certain minimum things, but I really, because of the nature of my work, I was able to get away with it. And so I was basically just doing recovery stuff. I was reading, I was staying sober and all that. And yet, I would typically get to sleep somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m. Now, you need to understand, I normally go to sleep around 10. This is a lot later than I normally go to sleep. And I would typically wake up for the day around 5 or 6. And I would normally get up maybe between 6 and 7. So it was later going to sleep, earlier getting up. Every day, I was getting pretty tired. Uh, the AA people were saying, lack of sleep isn't going to kill you. And this is exact, which is not true, but it was reassuring. And, and, um, and I would get through it. So I did believe them on that score, that I would get through it. But it was really difficult. I, I have since come to learn this is perfectly normal in terms of withdrawal. But I didn't really know that, except that I had some reassurance uh, from people. And um, so I was tired. It was 2 a.m. I was still awake, because normally I'd be asleep by 1-ish. And um, I was sort of in a panic about the next day, you know. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. And I was very aroused, and I knew I was going to masturbate. And I was absolutely petrified, because I'd been to enough meetings to know that I, you know, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who said, if I started again, I know I have another relapse in me, but I don't know if I have another recovery. I knew I was in that class um, because of the nature of my disease, the effect it had on me, and that if I masturbated, I didn't know if I'd be able to go back. And I was just so scared. So I called. <coughs> I got the phone book and I called this guy, um, that same Harvey guy that happened. And I woke him up. It was 2.30 in the morning. And uh, I said I was really scared and I didn't know what I was going to do. Well, <laughs> I've had many of these calls since, but nonetheless, uh, it was my first. And he told me what to do, which is he told me to write gratitude lists, which I'll say more about in just a second. And he told me to read the A Big Book. Now, the gratitude list, as he explained it, and as I'll explain to you, uh, was to get, he said, the crap out, or shit, in his words. Uh, and um, the purpose of the AA Big Book was to put me back to sleep, because he said, reading the AA Big Book, <laughs> oh, you've done it. Reading the AA Big Book would put anybody to sleep. So, so I did exactly that. I wrote a gratitude. He said to do 20, so I did 20 gratitudes. And the format was this. Uh, you start off with saying, thank you. Now, I couldn't say God then, because I was still an atheist. So I, but I settled in on the word master, in a sense of teacher. 
So I would say, thank you, Master. That had to begin them. And then four, and I had to put down exactly what was going on that was shit, that was negative. He said, I don't want any of this namby-pamby, ain't life beautiful and the sky's all blue and puffy white clouds kind of crap. He says, only want crap on this list. So, okay, I'll do that. So I put down, thank you for my arousal at 2 a.m. and my fear that I'm going to masturbate and that I won't be able to get sober again. And then he said, and then put on it what that's teaching you. And so thank you for the arousal at 2 a.m. that teaches me that I am powerless over this disease and I can't recover without help from other people. Thank you for the short blue skirt that I saw today and my mentally undressing that woman and the reminder that my disease is constantly at work in my life. Thank you for my fear that Jane's going to abandon me and triggering all of my um, abandonment issues since I was a little kid and the reminder that um, if I change my life, uh, you'll take care of the abandonment issues. Uh, thank you. Well, I went on for 20 of those. Um, for myself, I found I had to write those gratitude lists every day, uh, and I did that probably for about five or six years. And I had two forms of doing them. I would do a gratitude list in the morning and try to get my 20. But some days I was just totally bonkers. Maybe many days, but some days there was more bonkers than others. And then I would just keep a running gratitude list all day long. It might be on a napkin. It might be in a notebook. It might be a, just a piece of yellow paper that I found somewhere. Uh, I've written them on everything. And I would just keep it with me and keep adding as the crap would come up. And what he said was, we just don't let the crap accumulate. He said, we can't do anything about the crap, but we don't let it accumulate. And it's sort of a spiritual laxative. And you just keep getting it out all the time. And everything is in the sense of a gratitude. Thank you, Master. Later on, thank you, God, for this negative experience, which teaches me whatever. Dependency, surrender, you know. I did it during meetings. I know we talk in our white book about let don't write during meetings. Well... I understand about taking notes, but I wasn't taking notes. I was jumping, dumping crap. And in fact, if I, I never did take notes, as best I know. I, don't, I shouldn't overstate that, but I don't think I ever did in a meeting. Unless somebody said something that I wanted to use later, I might do that. That was about it. And that was pretty rare. Um, but I did write gratitude lists for many years uh, during meetings. And, uh, and that's really uh, kind of what got me going. Uh, the gratitude list, a big book. I started reading it. Uh, what he said was, just read it. And when you get to the end, start over. So that's still what I do. It takes nine months if you read a page, two, two pages every day. I now read about one page every third day. It takes about a year and a half uh, to um, get through the book. I also started adding uh, 12 steps and 12 traditions. I use the little gift edition because it has the cloth marker. It makes it easy. Uh, as Bill sees it, it's the same way. I started reading our white book uh, in, when it eventually came out, I read the book we have now. Before that, I read the 8.5 by 11 version. And um, and when it came out, I used Recovery Continues. And that's still my reading pattern, is to read every day. Because, and I don't know how they do this, even AA does it. And that book's been out since 1939. Um, they have an office in New York that takes your copy of the AAB book and changes it between times when you read it. Um, it makes computers look fanciful. I mean, you know, how they do it, I don't know. 
But on my literature, is the same physical books are still with me, but this is not the same literature that I started reading 13 years ago. And I don't know how they changed the words, but there are different things in there. I heard things this morning when you were reading that I hadn't heard before, particularly about Seventh Tradition. I don't know why, but it hit me. Um, they mess with it. They're messing with me all the time. But it's so interesting that I keep wanting to go back, see how I'm going to be messed with today. And my experience is wherever I am in the books, and I'll tell you what's really spooky is when you're reading, as Bill sees it, 12 and 12, SA Big Book and the AA Big Book, and they're all on the same thing. They're all on step five. They're all on step eight. They're all, I mean, it's weird. Uh, they do that somehow. Uh, people in their first couple of years um, of sobriety, if you move up front, and let's sort of find out what matters to you, and I'll share whatever happened to me. <laughs> the whole room. <laughs> um, it's Bill. Rich, I had said you could start, even though you didn't move. Do you want to... And then I'm going to move out to the circle. I messed up. You know, the question that I had, I, I said thanks for your story. You told my story, and I, I appreciated that. My experience um, was that even though I had lots of rationalizations, and I appreciated yours, they're a little different. I, I, <laughs> I could use yours, too. Um, I had lots of rationalizations that kept kept me going in terms of why I was doing and, and what good I was doing for these women that I was having affairs with and so forth. Um, but underneath, there was a voice that, that kept saying, this is not right, uh, you're screwed up. Um, and I kept pounding that voice down. And my question to you was, you know, did you have that voice? How loud was it? Uh, that, that's the question. When I got sober, um, as I said, I had no idea how constantly I was lusting. It was, in, it was incredibly loud in my head. I have never um, had this. I haven't talked about contracts yet. I'll talk about that a little later. But um, I, have, I had no awareness that I hallucinated. But one day, I'd been sober probably... Oh, a month and a half. I was sitting in a room, and uh, we had in that particular, it was a breakout group, I guess, but we had two or three women in the meeting, and us, and it was a pretty crowded room. There were probably maybe 12 or 15 of us in a sort of narrow room with a big table. And all of a sudden, one of the women was nude on the table in front of me. I mean, I saw her. And so the next day, I added hallucinating to my list. I mean... That I, that voice, that 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 power was immense. The thing is, I was always drunk. Yeah. My sponsor kept lecturing me, and I'll talk about sponsors when I get a chance. But on that, I was crippled. He said that statement, David, about we're like people have lost their legs and never grow new ones. He says that's not some metaphor. That's descriptive, um, in the sense that we are crippled, and it's not changing the fact that we're crippled that's going to make any difference because I'm not going to change that. I am that way. 
It's as am I going to live a life as someone who has a crippling disability. In my case, I still have both legs below my knees, but but the crippling disabilities are psychological and psychic and emotional and spiritual and all that. Am I going to live a life that recognizes that I'm crippled? Well, since I was drunk all the time, I didn't care if I was crippled. And when I got sober, I kept bumping into myself, essentially, my limitations. And and my sponsor didn't work a full week's work for about three or four years. I didn't work a full week's work for probably six to eight months. But he said, well, that's just because you're standing on the shoulders of giants, David, you know. <laughs> you don't have to work as hard as I did. So no one ever accused him of lack of ego. But... Um, <laughs> But, uh, but in fact, that turned out to be very helpful. And I, so, not only did I have that voice, it just really haunted me in many ways. I had no idea. But I, I'm sure there's more to say. How's it going, guys? How's the first couple of years? What, what's working? What's not working? We're obviously not gonna exhaust this topic in 20 minutes, but, anybody? Hi, I'm Roger, sex addict. Um, during that time, did you use any other therapy or read anything other than just 12 steps? There's a whole lot of stuff out by Patrick Carnes, by Dr. Douglas Weiss, who's a sex addict himself. Do you see that as being useful? Do you see that as being damaging or taking away from the 12th step or as an adjunct-type therapy? Yeah, I'm glad, Thank you. Um, I got a copy of Out of the Shadows probably within the first week and read it. Um, I honestly don't remember much about the book itself. I have two copies now. I still have never gone back and read it. Except his list of traits. He had four lists that we feel there's something inherently wrong with us, that uh, we feel if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me, that um, I can't trust other people to meet my needs, and that my primary need is sex. Now, I read that 13 years ago. And it's as vivid in my mind today as a lot of my other exploits. So I'm very grateful, because that certainly is me. And I'm grateful to Carnes for that. Um, I've read a little bit of the other stuff, or I should say I've tried to. I just haven't been able to. I have been in therapy most of my time in recovery. Uh, sometimes weekly or twice a week. Sometimes like once every other week or once a month. At the moment, I'm not in active therapy. I'm kind of getting ready to go back in, as a matter of fact. Uh, I've had some major uh, insights in therapy. Uh, I've also had therapists who, when I was acting out, kept me would have kept me terribly sick. I was really angry. I remember I'd been sober two or three months. I was coming up on 90 days, I think. I was furious with that therapist who had told me to manage my affairs. You know, I was just, and I was taking his inventory, and I had more than casual information about him, so I could really do a good job of taking his inventory. And one day, I'd left a meeting um, and was driving down, and I went past where his office was, and I looked up at his office, and the, the rage started to come up, and then I thought, something hit me. And I thought, wait a minute, when I went to see that guy, I was about to kill myself, and I didn't. And he did his job. And in fact, I told him everything, and it didn't change anything. So he did his job twice because I also discovered that therapy wasn't going to cure me. So he not only kept me alive, and I went inside, went up to his office. Um, I don't know that I need to do it, but it, it got me through it. 
The other therapists uh, have by and large been people who just did not interfere with my 12-step recovery. They didn't have any opinions on it. They were supportive of whatever I wanted to do, but that was it. And we just dealt with therapeutic issues. And, and my sponsor also was very big on therapy is wonderful. 12-step recovery is wonderful. Just don't mix them. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I try to do. If I bring therapy into meetings, I try to make an amends for it because I really think I've done something that's not right. So I'm sure there's more, but I'll stop with that. Yeah. Uh, okay, my name is Bert. I'm a sexologist. So, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, gone in and out, in and out, and uh, I have uh, had a really difficult time being honest. I'm a real liaholic. I, that's what I would call myself. I'm a very dishonest person. Yeah, almost everything I do is dishonest. Almost even right now, there must be some dishonesty in what I'm doing because I know myself. Uh, you know, I, I stopped drinking many times, and then I finally did stop drinking. It was just really simple. Uh, is there, <clears throat> what is the prognosis for people who have a large part of them that want to quit, but they're liars? And what is the prognosis for their really quitting? Well, in my experience, I'm a liar too, and some of my most shameful stuff is looking at people straight in the eye and telling them a bald-faced lie, and they believe me, including people I love, my wife, my kids, others. Um, The, the thing that's worked for me, you know, there's a lot of places where therapy could be very useful That The thing that's worked for me has been the 12 steps because if I'm working the steps, I can't lie. And now I can also not work the steps and lie all I want. And, and that's, so that's sort of what's happened to me. What I've found is that the the thing that has probably helped me the most with lying has been making amends. Uh, it's helped me with my rage and with the lying. When I've had to go back to someone and say, I was wrong for this, and I ask your forgiveness. Um, and essentially humiliation, which 12 and 12 says is our major teaching tool. <laughs> it's God's major teaching tool for sure. And and experience that humiliation of admitting that I've lied and or raged, which is my two big things, um, and asking forgiveness, which is the hardest part, um, over and over again until finally I got tired of it. So uh, I have other things. This is one of my anti-lying tools here, um, the rubber band, and um, I'll talk more about that later. But we can talk more maybe to other people. Yeah. I'm Bill. I'm a sexaholic. <laughs> um, during your recent sh- just sharing now, you, you talked about sexualizing everything. And, um, boy, that really hit home. I, I don't know when I came to the awareness of it. It was long before I realized I was a sexaholic, that every time I met a woman, I was thinking about her sexually. And that didn't happen all, all my life. It happened at one point, and all of a sudden I realized, God, this is what, what's going on here. What's, what's, how, how screwed up am I? And then when you're talking about other things, I didn't realize I was doing it in everything. I used to think it was just women. But now that you mentioned driving down a road or doing other things, I was doing the same thing, and I'm still a year into the program doing it, certainly more than I should be doing it, I think. And that's what scares me now listening to you talk. How do I change that mentality? How do I stop looking at women as sexual objects every time I meet one and start looking at them as people and getting away from that? 
But that's that's what I think is the struggles I struggle with most every day now is, is how do I avoid those kinds of temptations? Well, I, I can tell you my own experience on both of those issues uh, with the uh, constantly sexualizing. Uh, I had to put every I didn't have to I chose to, but in fact it's what I did. I had to put every one of them on my gratitude list. Sometimes my gratitude list. I, sometimes I struggled for the twenty. Other times the twenty went right past and I went way on down. And and putting those on my gratitude list probably was the thing that put them literally in, out of my head, in front of my face, over and over again. The other thing, and I remember, I, I was pissed at him at the time. I can get right back into being angry with him. I was talking to my sponsor one time after a meeting, and I said, you know, this, this woman was in the meeting, and, and to say nothing of women I meet on the street, and I imagined her in a sexual situation, and he said, would you be willing to not initiate any contact with any women whatsoever except for strictly business purpose? <laughs> I was really angry. I, mean, I was pissed. It was hard work. It was really hard. That's the only way I was able to break it. Um, he later did the same thing for me with professional colleagues where I was getting all crazy. And he said, would you be willing to not initiate any contact with them? And it was I had the same reaction. And uh, it was equally effective. And I had the same experience with both of them. And that is with the women. I used to go down the street and I would say, oh, that's a nice person. And it didn't have to be anything sexual, you know, not at all. And I would get their attention and smile and nod at them and go on my way. You know, I wasn't dwelling. I wasn't obsessing. Well, after he had thrown that challenge down, I started one day, I was walking down the street and I started paying attention to how many women were looking at me? Zero. <laughs> None. Not one. The only person that was looking and getting eye contact and smiling was me. God, that was humiliating. I had been initiating all along, and I was sober. I had two or three years at that point. I was doing it in meetings. I was doing it on the street, at work, everywhere. You know, With the colleagues, the same thing happened. I stopped initiating contact. I had probably 150 people from whom I had every reason to think I would have contact in the course of the next two years. I had contact from two of them. That was it. And I had no idea. And it wasn't until I was truly willing to stop initiating that I discovered not only what I was doing, but more importantly, some freedom from it. And, and today I would say most of the time I have that freedom. I can slip back into it, but, you know. I don't know. A couple other people. Yeah. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I've been I've been coming since about I would say probably like beginning of March this year, and since I really haven't had any long-term sobriety, and um, it was really challenging to hear that um, I'm responsible. You know. Once I've identified that I'm responsible for my actions, and um, it was challenging to hear. Um, also, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, it, your gratitude list, is that something that you do every day, or is it something that you do when you're struggling with something? Or And, and how, how much of a role does that play um, as far as like sobriety? Uh, I'll go backwards. I think it's a major tool for sobriety for me because, as it said in one of the readings we had today, 
was one I read, so I guess it was in Recovery Continues. We can't do anything about the crap coming into us. We can do a lot about getting it out. And, and essentially, when I write it down, I get it in the light. And actually, the odds are I will not only get it in the light, I will share it with someone else later. Uh, so it's I get triple, double, triple benefit out of it. Um, the um, I mean, I started smirking when you said daily. I probably wrote daily gratitude lists for eight or nine years. Uh, I'm now down to doing about one or two a week. They are best used when I don't need them. Like everything in this program, it's using it when I don't need it that really does me the most good. When I do need it, and I'm already so far over the edge, I'm just barely clawing my way back up the cliff. Um, And so I do write, I I will certainly do mental gratitudes uh, frequently for women's situations, red lights, stupid drivers, you know, disappointments at work, whatever. Uh, I'll do them mentally. I'll actually write them pretty regularly. And if I'm if I am struggling and specific answer your question, I will always do one because it's such a powerful tool. Um, as far as the being responsible, you know, and the and the sobriety, that takes so many concrete forms. Um, I, when you were talking, one of the things that occurred to me was last night uh, I, I didn't get to bed till a little after ten because I was working on a project and I knew I was going to get up early to come down here. And I woke up a couple of times. You know how sometimes you'll do that if you know you got to get up for something. And and this is how I sleep. Now I sleep this way because my desire is to touch myself, and the only way I can remind myself to not do it is to keep my hands up above my shoulders at night. Um, I know guys who uh, wear, and women too, who wear very heavy uh, nightwear. I, I can't actually do that because I get too warm. I, I just have a high body temperature, so I have to do other things. And um, and and. Essentially, just being not allowing myself to touch myself. The other thing that has made an immense difference to me um, is uh, the third step prayer. Um, I was told I actually learned the third step prayer eight prayer eight years before I got sober. Uh, I was using it as a way to seduce a woman. I thought this was terribly funny looking back on it, but at the time it was very serious. And and I remember being on my knees in church doing the third step prayer, and I had, didn't have it in my head yet, so I was reading it on the palm of my hand. It was another eight years before I came into this program. Uh, I was told that the third step prayer was probably the most important thing I could learn short term, and there have been lots of other things I memorized since. So I did. I practiced it. Um, I am really likely to wake up in the middle of the night on the plane ride on the way down here, uh, during the daytime to find myself doing the third step prayer. Um, it gets me out of myself. Uh, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage, oh, I like that word, of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. That just rattles through my skull and what I've learned over the years is I don't have to know why, but I do know, and it's a good thing I don't most cases, but I do know I have to do it. And so that's been really critical for me. Also, you may have noticed I don't change the words in it. Uh, it's the third step prayer that led to that. Um, I used to, I was standing in a meeting one day, I'd probably been sober about three years, and I would change instead of thy will, your will, I would change words in the third step prayer. And so we were standing in a circle and doing the third step prayer. We came to the end and take away my difficulties, the victory over them, may bear witness to those I would help 
of thy... And I suddenly was brought up short because what I had been saying, what I had memorized was, and I had changed it to your, of your love, your power, and your way of life. But the words are of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. And I, I got this, I'm getting it right now, this chill in me. And I said, David, that's what you always do. You want to be sure the love is there first before you'll accept the power, you know. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to, my mind is going to play with words. And it's why I'm not an advocate of changing the AA Big Book. You know, all that hymn for God stuff. It's because I can't stop. Maybe somebody else can do an editing and stop, but I can't stop. So once I start, I'm going to keep changing. And so, and then God's power has to come first. So anyway, those are some of the things. Probably two more and then we'll quit. Thanks, Dave. I'm Myron Sexaholic. My, my question for you is, is, how do you focus on a day-to-day basis? Uh, I've been, uh, I spent 17 months so with sobriety, uh, gave it up, uh, spent four months binging, started again. I'm just past my year again. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, but I still have a hell of a time focusing. Uh, I, I envy these people who meditate every morning because I get <laughs> start to meditate and my mind wanders into so many different directions that I can't I can't concentrate I, to the point that I don't even know what meditation really is, you know, because meditation is like getting it all together in my head, uh, and then it wanders and drifts. Uh, I, I make a daily connection with my God. Uh, I make contact throughout the day with Him, uh, short little vignettes, so to speak. Uh, the uh, I. I'm becoming paranoid. Uh, I just, you know, and I don't know if uh, I was talking to somebody at, during the break. I think my medication's failing me. The, uh, uh, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's overdoing its job. I don't know. But uh, what is your, what is your idea on focusing? Is the other question related to that? Somebody else was. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll do it separately. Um, I, there's so many, you know, what it says on page 25 is there's a spirit, in a big book, there's a kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. And that's kind of been what works for me, is I keep not only filling the toolbox, my higher, God is so amused by my disease that he gives me an opportunity to use the tools on a frequent basis. Uh, and they can be various forms. But when you were talking, the thing that came most clearly to my mind was on January 1st, I'd probably been sober seven years or so at that point, um, I was talking to my sponsor. I called my sponsor every morning at 7.30 for seven years. Um, there was no magic in the seven. That's just what it happened to work out. And then I had to change sponsors for various reasons, and I called him probably once or twice a week, and now that's probably about my frequency of calling. I really miss it. But one of the most important things I did, I, he told me to call him every day, so I did. And I was literally all over the world. I was in Europe. I was all over this country. I was in Mexico. I called him at 7.30. And it cost a lot of money at times, too. But I spent a lot more than that doing other stuff. And um, I said to him once, you know, why do I need to call you so often? And he said, you know, David, I don't really care what you say on the phone because I hear 
what I need to hear in your voice. And I have people who call me every day. One calls at 20 of 6, one calls at 10 of 6, one calls, I mean 7, one calls at, you know, right after 7, one calls at 8, one, you know. And they call me often enough that that's what happens with me. I don't have to hear what they say. In fact, sometimes I just hold the phone out here. I don't really care what they say, particularly if it's explicit. But, um, but I definitely want to hear how they say it and what's going on. And that, that made an immense difference in my life. And in some ways they, we do that for each other because they, of course, hear in me and I'm going to, whatever was going on, they're going to hear. But on January 1st to probably 1994 or so, I was talking to my sponsor and, uh, I said, well, I've done my readings. I did my meditation and prayer and contract for sobriety. Uh, I'm calling you. I'm going to go to a meeting tonight. And he said, you know, isn't it interesting? We don't have vacations anymore. And I realized that's a big part of what had happened was I, there is no vacation from this disease. So there's no vacation from the solution. And I, and I literally do within a very narrow range the same things every day, every day of the year, year after year. And you know, there's a part of me that wants to say that's a big deal. There's another part of me though that has diabetes runs in my family. I know lots of it. My best friend from college has been injecting insulin for 48 years now. Not quite, 45 years now. Uh, you know, if you're diabetic, it, whether you're having, you know, whether your sweetie's being nice to you or not, whether they're treating you well at work or not, whether the weather's cloudy or the weather's sunny, uh, you damn well better check your insulin, check your blood and take your insulin or you're going to have the same reaction. And I realize I have a disease just like diabetes. And I can pretend that I can eat really sugary stuff today and it's not going to affect me, but the disease is going to tell me otherwise. And if I don't take the same things... I'm going to have that predictable reaction, and I do. Uh, so I don't. I just do the same thing. And I, the way meditations work for me is I do a meditation time, which is fairly short, and a contract for sobriety, which is this. I'll talk more about that this afternoon. Um, and I, I, what I, I told someone this the other day, and I thought, was I lying? And I thought about what I actually do, and I realized, no, I wasn't lying. I was telling the truth. I figure out when I need to get up in the morning, and then I get up half an hour earlier. Uh, that's just my formula. And that half hour is for the program stuff. It's for the reading, for the gratitude list, for the meditation, for the contract for sobriety. And generally by that time a phone starts ringing. Um, and that's just sort of my daily formula. Uh, so today I wanted to get up. Uh, I had to, wanted to leave the house at 5.30. So I got up at a quarter of five because it takes me about 15 minutes to get dressed. And uh, that's when I did the stuff and fed the dog too. And then I... So that's what I do. One last question and we'll stop. I'm Jim. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I came into the program last summer uh, around a relationship that I actually wanted to work. And I realized that it wouldn't work as a sex addict. And I cried for five days straight. I remember keeping track of it and telling people... Five days, just amazing after, you know, eight years and I hadn't cried. I had the freshness of surrender and I was, to some extent, relieved of the bondage of self. My difficulty in the first year or so has been to keep that freshness of surrender. And it's a rhetorical problem in a sense because I know 
It's in the book. Get a sponsor. Work the steps. Work. But I've, after I got some half measure of sobriety, I'll call it, because I started acting out again, I realize part of me is clean, does not want to let go of my, quote, self, maladaptive as it is, and that's been the challenge for me. And I don't, it's not exactly laziness. I have to work. I'm not going to get better by just going to meetings and having everything soak into me by osmosis. I have to work, and I've been resisting that, and, you know, I tie it in with the bondage of self. It's not really a question. I just wanted to, you asked where we were, and that's where I am. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, the self-centeredness is what this disease is all about. Uh, whatever form it takes, it might be lust, it might be obsession, uh, it might be not wanting to do the work. I do all those same things. So I, you know, um, I can really identify with that. Um, I have found um, that if I do the same thing every day, it kind of resets me. And, and I will say to people, because I need to hear myself saying it, is that as far as I can tell, in 13 years and a couple months, I have never yet been sober one day on my own in this program. I'm not capable of it. I would have masturbated this morning. I would have called a woman to set up in a relationship with her this morning um, if I just were being David. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to believe that. Oh, you got all this time. you got all this experience. you read all this stuff. A bunch of hooey. It's, it's like a diabetic saying, you know, today I'll skip the insulin. Well, that's fine. Go ahead and skip it. Uh, and it'll have exactly the effect you would expect. So um, I don't know how to stay sober, and, and that's where I go. That's where I start. So then, um, that's the only thing that keeps me sober is my higher power and 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 doing the work on a daily basis. I really appreciate your sharing that, though. Um, I think do we need to stop or what? We'll start with you next time. Uh, thank you, guys. I, I guess those who wish, resume uh, after lunch. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.